This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Well, without um, going into any of the um, unnecessary details, a few weeks ago, uh, I ended up making a decision to file my first ever lawsuit against um, this um, person that I could uh, say a lot of nasty things about, who um, is a store owner in Galesburg, Illinois, and failed to protect me from a slip and fall accident and other people in his store. So uh, in the midst of struggling with uh, how to um, love my enemy, I went to the scripture text to find out what it was I would preach this week, and and there's an order of preaching texts. So it's not really, I mean, I could have veered from it, but it's the protocol is to preach from those standard already chosen texts. So I look this one up, and it happens to be uh, love your enemy. I mean, there's other words there, right? But it was this, for me, this was sort of like a Harry Potter rune. It was like these words lifted off the page and kind of hovered in front of me. Uh, Love your enemies. Now, I think by the time we get here, it's boiled down to the more specific moment of love, the kinds of love, than it was in uh, Dorita's lovely overview I'm kind of inclined to think this really must be rule 105. No, maybe only eight, but um, we're getting more specific here in the text. Love your enemies. And interestingly, we just passed Valentine's Day, wherein we celebrated people and love with flowers and cards and calls and Instagrams and um, those great little uh, animated things people send, Judy Lawson things on the email, and for some people, wine and chocolate. It's been a week of remembering old songs, people all over the world, come on, join hands, get on the love train, love train, right? Um, and, the, and the power of love, and this one you'll have to sing with me, and that Beatles chorus, love, 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 love is all you need, right? Let's do it again. Love, oh, she's going to give me a note. Love, love, love is all you need, right? Okay. That's close enough, right? right. <laughs> Jennifer reminded me she was in classical training when the Beatles were really popular. Uh, well, apparently to Jesus, love, love is all you need. And it's a lot more complicated than foil-colored chocolates. Jesus says, hey, don't think so highly of yourself. It's easy to love those who love you back. Love your lover. Though it's not consistently easy. (laughs) Confessing. (laughs) Love your neighbor, which in my neck of the woods has been really challenging, and I've told you about that before. Um, Love yourself, which as a therapist I know is one of the hardest things people have to learn to do. Um, But if you get a modicum of success in all those areas, you have even more to do. 
It's even harder. See if you can love your enemy. Now, I went to um, look at the writings of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and it turns out uh, he wrote this in a letter to a friend. Um, I have something of a custom to preach from this text once a year. For him, it was necessary to preach on love your enemy because every year he was finding new people hard to love, more people hard to love. And this was in the midst of an incredible struggle uh, for freedom and for liberation and equality. So this morning, as we talk about our many United Methodist delegates gathered, we know the national church language in our book of discipline. If you're not aware, that's the rule book of the church. Looks like that little red spiral bound book, only thicker. Um, and it's decided every four years by delegates. But uh, in this case, they were so conflicted, they added another meeting between those four-year periods of time. Um, and a task force, and um, because it wasn't until the 1970s that the National Church added rules in the rule book that said clergy could not conduct holy union services, and clergy who are openly self-avowed homosexuals can't serve in the church. Now, the Western jurisdiction has uh, disobeyed those rules consistently throughout my, my ministry span since the 70s, uh, and many of us have broken all those rules as well. Um, I want to remind you as a church, though, that you also have totally ignored that rule book and gone for the big thing that Dorito was speaking about. Um, my first step inside this church was a P-flag meeting in the basement here. Okay? Parents and friends of lesbians and gays. They no longer meet anywhere in the valley that I'm aware of. Um, but that was my first encounter with this church. And this church has been the home of, um, of many, many open folks and has been a place of diversity for many, many years. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the Abdul Ellis funeral here. Lesbians murdered in our valley. I'm thinking of um, a year or two years now when we married Chuck and David in this sanctuary. This has been an open and affirming place. And our Western jurisdiction, all the bishops have said, we're going to be open and affirming no matter what. So one of the possible earthquake outcomes might be that we all become, uh, well, I have to add it to the title, uh, Western Jurisdictional United Methodists, <laughs> right? Um, I don't know. Um, we are a world church. Some of the debate is about being a world church because uh, in reality, our African United Methodists have a whole different vision of sexuality and they aren't quite as ready as even the folks uh, I've been working with in South Georgia. Now, in South Georgia, they're not really united on this, but I'd say two-thirds would go for a fully inclusive church in South Georgia. But by the time we get to Africa, we've got uh, male pastors who are married to two wives. So it's, it's a whole different cultural world and why the church decided not to just make a vote toward progressive 
openness was to see if they could hang on to being a global united church. And um, that is a goal we can support. And there may be a way to allow the freedom of individual areas and congregations and bishops without punishment that would still allow us to be a truly united church. The difficulty this week, I think, is that we find out that it's, I think, particularly hard in our culture and in our United Methodist Church that some of our enemies call themselves Christians. (laughs) Thank you for being here today. Well, you know, some of them feel that way about me, right? And, uh, and particularly when we get as liberal as Natalie Boltz Weber, who's coming, you know, they're going to say, and she's a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I got this uh, lovely recent blog sent to me by a dear colleague, um, John Pavlovitz, who was United Methodist as long as he could be, and I, I think isn't now, but... Um, He's really wise about this. He said, I I grew up in a church, and I was told that the heart of faith was to live in a way that reflects the character and love of Jesus so vividly, so beautifully, that others were compelled to follow after him, that a Christian's living testimony would be a catalyst for someone's conversion. And what a difference a couple of decades make. Ask around. People outside of the church will tell you, love is no longer our calling card. It is now condemnation, bigotry, judgment, and hypocrisy. With every persecution of the LGBTQ community, with every unprovoked attack on Muslims, with every planet-wrecking decision, with every regressive civil rights move, The flight from Christianity continues. How painfully hard it is for us to bear witness to Christ's love when people with great fear exclude and hate others while calling upon Jesus' name. They call themselves Christians. And when Jesus said, love your enemy, did he even know that Christians would become enemies with other Christians? and with other people of faith around the world. In Alabama last week, Dominic Hakem Marcel Ray, who had been convicted of murdering three teenagers, asked to have a Muslim cleric accompany him to the death chamber. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he was denied this fundamental principle in the United States. It's called the Establishment Clause that says we all have the right to religious freedoms. This man wanted the imam there with him at the hour of his death for spiritual consolation. And he was forced into this dilemma that he could die alone or have a Christian chaplain in the room with him. And Jesus said, love your enemy. Who is our enemy? 
I had to ask myself, who were Jesus' enemies that he would come up with this? And I can't really find any, you know? He didn't delve into politics. While Caesar was growing more and more powerful on the backs of the poor, he didn't go up to Capitol Hill, I mean Jerusalem. He went to the lake, and he went to the field, and he went to the little town, and he went to the wilderness. And he loved the stranger, and he had dinner with the IRS guy, the tax preparer. He loved the untouchable beggar, loved the super rich man who knew how to evade the tax man, and that was Nicodemus. And he loved the woman that others shunned for making a living as a sex worker. And he loved the impetuous new convert, Peter. And he even loved the devil who tempted him. And when he sat in his own wilderness of great darkness... Jesus loved the soldiers at the foot of his cross, the criminals on either side of him, and then he asked God to forgive those who hammered his body with nails to the cross. Love your enemies. It's no wonder that we have a great old folk hymn that begins, what wondrous love is this? Jesus has the ability to love just about everyone. Now, I don't think I can do that, but I did make a list of my enemies this week. <laughs> so get out your pencil, your iPhone, your notes app, and make a list. Write down those names. Think a minute. I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. Who's going to go on the list? Your enemies. Now, this isn't to deny your pain or to say you should never act for justice. I want to be really clear about that. Some of us have been so deeply hurt by other human beings that it's really hard to get people off the enemy list. And maybe it's even good for our spirit and strength to hold some people on the list forever. But even Martin Luther King wrote, discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him or her, find a center of goodness and place your attention there and you will begin to hold a new attitude. We have a picture of a couple of folks, Greg Gibson and Wayne Lowe. These two got together and did a StoryCorps podcast. Wayne Lowe, 20 years ago, took a semi-automatic rifle into a college campus and killed uh, two people, injured four. And one of them is Greg, the older guy's son, who was killed. It's a very powerful thing. And Greg says, almost since that first moment of my son's death, it has been my constant prayer to take this most awful thing that could possibly happen and turn it into something good so that it's not all just a pure waste and loss. 
Gibson said he wasn't looking to forgive or find closure. He just wanted to look low in the eye and talk. And they did. And Jesus said, love your enemy. Even after trauma and loss. Well, shortly after my sister and her husband moved into a new house in a suburban neighborhood in Arizona, actually. But this could be anybody's suburban neighborhood. They went out to the movies one night, and when they arrived home, they found that a window had been jammed open. And someone had entered their house and stripped it. The office was bare. The computers were gone. My sister's family jewelry, all my grandmother's wedding rings, uh, uh, everything stolen from the house that could be resold or used. And their new big, big screen TV, of course, pulled off the wall. They called the police to no avail. No one could be found. No fingerprints were sufficient. They replaced the computers, made a better backup system. She lost a lot of her pictures. There's a little heads up. And they shored up the windows. They made sure they never left the house without every window secured. And guess what happened? Robbed a second time. Broken glass on carpets, had to replace all that. More electronics gone. The new big TV stolen again. Some random kitchen items. So they went out and bought an, a really expensive security system, alarm system on all the windows and doors. So they're out of the movies again when they get a little text that says, someone has entered your house. If this isn't you, please notify, should we notify the police, right? So they hit the yes, notify the police button. Now, do they rush home before the police get there? You know, that was a dilemma they faced, but they went on home and arrived about the same time as the police. Well, they finally figured out who this was. And it led to the arrest of a 23-year-old who lived right next door to them in a house with his mother until that day. And their sense of personal safety led them into trauma symptoms and sleep loss and irritability and flashbacks and depression. I supported my sister through this as best a sister who tries not to be her psychologist can do. And about six months later, she called me up and she said, my prayer group has been praying for me and for the young man who stole our things. And it opened my heart. I saw his mother in the yard last week, and I spoke to her. My sister and the mother are both fluent Spanish speakers. She said, I listened to the mother tell me about her son and his drug habit and the pain he caused and even how he had assaulted her. And I said to her, it will be all right. And she said, well, he's in jail, but I have a restraining order, and he won't be coming back to the neighborhood. And my sister said, it will be all right, because we have been praying for him. 
it astonished me. And I think it actually surprised her too. <laughs> because she's no different than you or like me. She reads her Bible. She takes Jesus pretty seriously. And she was surprised to find a way to love her enemy. Now again from Dr. King. He says, over the centuries, people have argued that love your enemies is an extremely difficult command. Many went so far as to say it's not possible to move out into the practice of this glorious command. They would say it's additional proof that Jesus was impractically an idealist who never came down to earth. So these arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus became the practical realist. The words of this text, he said, glitter in our eyes with urgency. Far from being a pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is absolutely necessary. It is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love is all you need. Let us pray. What wondrous love is this, Jesus, that you pour out upon us? The saint and the sinner, for we are both. The criminal and the sister who forgives, for we are both. The person who feels overwhelming shame and the person whose heart is capable of reconciling love, for we are both. We pray today for the fearfully phobic and the courageously inclusive. As we take your word with us into the week, give us the moral courage that we have seen in both great saints and ordinary sisters. Turn us from fear and call us into realistic and absolutely necessary love. Amen. <laughs>